You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. Happy New Year to you, Prashant. Good to be back with you. Yeah, same to you. Yeah, so uh, we're definitely kicking off 2020 uh, with uh, no shortage of things to talk about on the Asia Geopolitics podcast. We already just taped an episode this week with the Diplomats Editor-in-Chief Shannon Tiazzi on the upcoming elections in Taiwan. I very much recommend listeners go check that out. That's going to be a very important election to kick off a year uh, that's going to contain certainly no shortage of uh, interesting elections in Asia and elsewhere. Um, But the big story... And uh, this is really kind of on the frontier of the region that we at The Diplomat consider to be the Asia-Pacific, is the remarkable U.S. uh, drone strike to assassinate General Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian major general who leads the Quds Force, sort of Iran's equivalent of Central Command, so to speak, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' expeditionary arm that carries out a range of, um, manages a range of proxy operations and international operations in, in the Middle East. Uh, this has certainly been the biggest news story this week. Uh, pretty much everywhere has been talking about the implications of this strike, what various countries are doing in response. Uh, but I thought, Prashant, would be a good, way to, a good way to start off this episode is maybe to just go over a quick timeline of what exactly happened with the strike mm-hmm. on, on Soleimani. Because I think, uh, you know, if you've been reading the news, I'm sure everybody's heard about what happened. But it's, it's important to know, I think, how we got here. And I think the place to maybe start is around December 27th, 2019 or so, a few days before New Year's. Uh, So, of course, we had an attack by an Iran-aligned proxy group, Kataib Hezbollah, one of the most aligned uh, Shiite militias in Iraq with the Iranian government uh, that struck a military base near Kirkuk in Iraq, killing an American contractor. Uh, And also several Americans and Iraqis were wounded in the attack. Uh, And the Trump administration, of course, has been, you know, positioning itself to deal with a varying range of Iranian provocations over the last year. Really, all of this goes back to the May 2018 decision by the administration to withdraw from the JCPOA, the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement. Iran has been lashing out in a number of ways for a variety of reasons in the Middle East. I won't go too much into the geopolitics of the Middle East, obviously, since you know we don't really do that on this podcast. But broadly speaking, we've seen a number of Iranian actions, including attackers, uh, attacks on tankers, the remarkable attacks uh, earlier this um, last fall on Saudi oil facilities uh, by uh, by Iran as well. Uh, so on the 29th, then the Trump administration responds to that attack by by authorizing airstrikes against Qatib Hezbollah. That airstrike is seen widely as I think disproportionate. Kills far more members of the militia than. Um, were killed in the original strike on the base, which just killed one American contractor, of course. And uh, that leads to members of the militia, supporters of Qatib Hezbollah, uh, storming the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Uh, and that happens around uh, New Year's Eve. And, uh, of course, that's a very tense moment, brings to mind uh, memories of the very uh, unfortunate violence that resulted in the killing of the U.S. ambassador and other personnel in 2011 in uh, Benghazi in Libya. And uh, from there, we really start to spiral out of control. Uh, beginning into the, into the new year, Mike Pompeo, U.S. Secretary of State, cancels planned trips abroad. Uh, he's sort of coordinating the U.S. response to what's happening in the region. And then finally, uh, we we get to the 3rd of January, last Friday, when uh, we learned that the United States has conducted a drone strike and killed Qasem Soleimani and another senior Iraqi militia leader. And uh, Trump, of course, confirms that the next day the Iranians confirm it. And uh, that's really where we are. Uh, So Qasem Soleimani's sort of position in the Iranian hierarchy when it comes to foreign affairs, at least, uh, you know, President Hassan Rouhani has a ton of legitimacy and influence domestically. 
But in international affairs, really, Soleimani, uh, after the supreme leader, was probably the second most influential person, right? So people have sort of analogized this mm -hmm. as uh, the equivalent of, let's say, the Iranians taking out, you know, someone like Jim Mattis or General Petraeus uh, when they were serving in the region, the, the leader of Central Command, uh, the equivalent of that action. And uh, f several days later, you know, there has been a lot of talk about uh, potentially a spiral into conflict. Uh, the U.S. Uh, strike has certainly been described as an act of war by many people, and certainly under international law, I think it could reasonably be read in that way. Uh, but every country uh, of any any influence that has stakes in the Middle East is paying very close attention to what is happening. And that, of course, goes for every major Asian power. And we've seen a variety of reactions from across the region. Um, so, Prashant, I guess a place to maybe begin our discussion you know, we've been talking on the podcast uh, when we were previewing 2020 and reflecting on 2019 on recent episodes. We were talking about how the Trump administration is likely to be more Trumpified, so to speak, uh, in the sense that there are fewer guardrails on the president's instincts. Uh, you know, you don't really have a, a character like Jim Mattis to place sort of red lines that the United States won't cross. Uh, something like, you know, Soleimani's killing is kind of difficult to imagine happening under Mattis. Uh, but now, of course, we have a very different administration, fewer people to second guess the president. And of course, we have heard the argument that the strike is really also being effectuated to distract from the president's woes after the impeachment vote in December. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, I mean, uh, do you read this move by the United States in, in light of what's happening in Washington, D.C. and th the changing nature of personnel within the administration? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough to say, right? Because, you know, as we discussed on, on the one hand, you are seeing this trend where, you know, a lot of the initial folks in the administration that people expected to either restrain Trump or or at least put the administration in a more conventional position like McMaster or Mattis uh, have left the administration. And so on the one hand, you would you would sort of think that um, this would lead to a more sort of, you know, Trump-esque approach to Iran. But on the other hand, it, it is tough to to sort of assess where this is exactly, because um, you know you laid out the timeline there uh, very well in terms of the sequence of events. There are still things that we don't know about um, the decision making, the options that were laid out for Trump, and and how the selection process went. But also, you know, Trump on Iran has really been you know all over the map. Uh, sort of where he's been on on several issues. You know, sort of on the one hand saying, you know, we, we might threaten to sort of ramp up the pressure on, on Iran, you know, this approach of maximum pressure. But on, on the other hand, he's held out the potential for negotiations with Iran as well. And so it's very difficult to see where this, you know, discrete event uh, or development, you know, takes the Trump administration's approach. I mean, we've seen, you know, all kinds of interpretations. You know, one interpretation is that, you know, Trump was somehow trying to, you know, reestablish deterrence that was seen to have been lost when the U.S. didn't react to several times when the Iran the Iranians were. Uh, actually provoking the United States, but you know it, it's very tricky to to see what deterrence was being established against. Right, we have very little sense of what you know actual imminent uh, attack that the administration is claiming was was happening uh, was actually occurring. Uh, and then on on the other hand, uh, as well on the Iranian side, we really haven't seen uh, a sort of clear response from them. Uh, you know, with respect to the United States yet. I mean, the the Iranians have several ways that they can react you know, across the spectrum. Um, and so it is difficult to say, say what it means for Trump's foreign policy. I think one thing that we can say, though, is that you know, throughout the Trump administration, we've had this question. We've had issues of you know, in, the interagency process, you know, Trump's uh, very unconventional methods about foreign policy. And I think the big question uh, on most observers' minds, including observers in Asia, is 
okay, all this is maybe fine when you have a conventional administration, regular running of foreign affairs, but what happens when a crisis happens? And I think this is actually the closest that we've seen to a high level crisis. We've had other crises, you know, with North Korea, for example, but the Middle East often commands a lot of attention within U.S. foreign policy. And so this is the closest to which we've seen a, a test as to how the Trump administration is going to react and the dynamics of the administration. And I think so far, um, if you're seeing this as a test, I think the, there are several questions that remain about what this says about the administration's approach moving forward. And I think a lot of Asian countries are really scratching their heads and figuring out how do we react to this. Yeah, well, so, you know, let's let's talk about some of those countries. I think the place to start uh, here is probably China, um, right? So I, I've seen the argument being made on Twitter and elsewhere that, you know, China and Russia are going to you know love this uh, sort of rise in tensions in the Middle East because it distracts the United States from great power competition. You know, yet again, the United States is getting quagmired in the Middle East. Uh, you know, we've seen confusion in just the last 24 hours about whether the United States is withdrawing from Iraq. It is not withdrawing, apparently. That was all a terrible mistake from DOD. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification, right? I mean, if you, if you look at what China and Russia have actually been saying and doing, uh, and maybe it does make sense to take China and Russia together, because I think we've actually seen a fair degree of coordination between Beijing and Moscow at the Security Council here in New York, certainly. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because um, Zarif, the uh, Iranian foreign minister, Javed Zarif, uh, was in China uh, shortly before the Soleimani strike. And, uh, you know, China was pretty clear uh, with its um, position, right? So the foreign minister, uh, Wang Yi, said that China will stand uh, against unilateralism and bullying by the United States, which it didn't really name. Uh, but it did actually, you know, remind the world that China continues to see the unilateral withdrawal by the United States from the JCPOA, quote, giving up on its international commitments and attempts to implement maximum pressure uh, as being the source of tensions, right? So that's that's a pretty clear statement of where China places the blame. Um, and the China-Iran relationship certainly remains vital for a number of reasons, right? So China um, has stakes, obviously, in the Middle East as, as the world's top energy importer. Uh, so energy stability, geopolitical stability, oil prices, all of that is critical for China uh, as an importer. And obviously, I think the rise in tensions, whatever Beijing might get by having a United States that's more distracted and focused on Iran and the Iraq-Syria theater, which frankly, I mean, if you if you think about the first three years of the Trump administration, even as strategic documents have talked about great power competition, if you look at what the administration has been doing on a day-to-day basis, it's it's fairly easy to make a case that the United States has been just as involved in the Middle East, if not more, than in previous years. So that, you know, to me, isn't really very convincing. But China certainly is watching uh, everything that's been happening over the past few days quite closely. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I I think that's right. I mean, I, the 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 Chinese and the Russians. I think one of the ways in which we're seeing uh, both of those countries come together is around this issue of the United States, um, which claims to be the guardian of the rules based order, actually violating international law and previous commitments. And so the Iran issue has always been uh, an area where they've looked to say, well, the United States has you know reneged on a previous agreement. Um, and there's also the issue of, you know, a, a targeting of a key Iranian official and a domestic political debate in the United States as well about, you know, what this is about international laws, as you briefly mentioned earlier. And then there's also this other issue, which is, you know, as you pointed out, the Trump administration has made uh, in official documents, um, you know, great power competition as being the, the center, the central preoccupation of U.S. foreign policy. Um, but this obviously, you know, the the, the main sort of uh, question here that the Iran question raises is, 
um, you know, can the United States, you know, do great power competition when it's focusing on these uh, other contests that lay in the Middle East, which has dragged uh, U.S. presidents in previously, particularly the Bush administration with, with the war in Iraq, but also the Obama administration had, you know, its own set of problems about trying to remain uh, you know, free from Middle East entanglements while focusing on Asia. So I think that's another angle at which I think China would be looking at, right? So if you look at the, the Bush administration and Iraq, I think for the Chinese, in retrospect, it was a sort of window of opportunity for them to consolidate their gains in, in Asia. And so whether this will lead the United States to be pulled into the Middle East in several ways, you know, as we see changes in the, the shape of the U.S. presence in Iraq, um, and broader engagements in the Middle East, you know, what does that mean for the United States and Asia policy? That's the other big thing that you rightly flagged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think you know it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, also uh, another thing is that uh, on Monday uh, here in New York, uh, the Chinese and Russian permanent representatives to the UN uh, supposedly blocked a statement that the United States wanted to get uh, put out at the Security Council condemning the uh, initial assault uh, by um, the uh, supporters of the militia on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. And the Chinese and Russian position, which it's, it's interesting if you read the statements by both ambassadors, they seem coordinated, uh, was that, you know, well, really, if we're going to put a statement out of the Security Council, we should probably include all of the events that have happened in the last few weeks, including the implication being, you know, the strike on Soleimani. Uh, so th that statement didn't happen. It'll be interesting to see if the Security Council can even come together on this issue. Uh, so certainly, I think, uh, you know, China and Russia, I think, have learned their lesson. Uh, I mean, not not recently. They've learned this lesson for a while now. Uh, after in 2011 uh, abstaining on uh, Resolution 1973, which authorized uh, the Obama administration's action uh, against uh, Gaddafi's Libya, right? So uh, China and Russia really are in no position right now, um, not not least because of what's been happening um, over the past three years, certainly since the Trump administration has come into office, uh, to uh, really see the United States um, undertake any kind of adventurism against certainly Iran, uh, but also uh, even against Iraq. I mean, you know, now we have talk of unilateral withdrawal sanctions on Iraq. I mean, American policy against Iraq right now is totally, uh, totally uh, confused. Um, I shouldn't say against Iraq. I mean, Iraq's a U.S. ally right now, right? So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, really, it's really a mess. Uh, but I think China and Russia are really trying to position themselves to uh, keep a lid on this, it seems. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right to point to this, the, the UN and diplomatic angle, too. I, I think, you know, the, the initial instinct with the, the Soleimani, Soleimani killing is to sort of look at the military implications of this. But it, it is playing out uh, diplomatically as well, right? So, um, and that affects Asian states. So, uh, Vietnam is now, for example, you know, one of the non-permanent members of the Security Council. The Vietnamese have taken over the the presidency. Um, and I recall last year um, when the Vietnamese were were briefing uh, folks about what their priorities were, there was an emphasis by, by Vietnamese officials in saying, "Okay, we have to be." prepared for unprecedented uh, developments and challenges and unexpected challenges that arise in 2020. Well, we, we've just seen the first evidence of this, right? So other countries uh, in Asia and beyond will be caught in this diplomatic uh, sort of engagement and, and rivalry and contestation between the United States, uh, China and Russia as well. So, so you're right to point to that as one avenue. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think, you know, we should maybe talk about is North Korea. Um, there's been a lot of talk about what North Korea is learning or not learning from this strike on Soleimani, right? I think uh, the conventional take is that, well, you know, this is going to show North Korea that they should never give up their nuclear weapons. Um, you know, I mean, I think I think that point is fine. Although, you know, I mean, North Korea has known for a long time that nuclear weapons have value apart from, uh, you know, not getting your senior personnel killed. Mm -hmm. uh, they have repeatedly made 
examples of what happened to Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi in their state media. It's it's simply a fact that they point to those examples. But even going further back, I mean, you know, we could go back to 2013 when uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un declared uh, his so-called, you know, Pyongyang line, which was the the uh, the sort of state policy line focusing on building up a powerful nuclear deterrent and an economy. Uh, but of course, he referenced, you know, his his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, and, uh, you know, he, he pointed to the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, looking at the United States as a source of tensions around the region. And of course, in the 1950s, you could even look at um, Eisenhower and uh, and Dulles and the first uh, Taiwan Strait crisis, which not only taught Kim Il-sung something about the value of nuclear weapons, but even Mao, right? So that had a lot to do with China acquiring nuclear weapons. So I think the Soleimani killing, you know, sure, it's another data point uh, that shows that, you know, a country like Iran that's currently got a very bad relationship with the United States is getting treated very differently than North Korea, which has a bad relationship with the United States, but also has nuclear weapons. And of course, Kim Jong-un got to go to Singapore and Hanoi while Qasem Soleimani uh, got to eat a uh, precision-guided missile. All right. So that's a, that's a very uh, different way to treat both of these countries. Um, but, you know, I'm just not convinced that the North Korean reaction to this is going to be any, uh, you know, any, any different than uh, what they've been doing. I mean, you have, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, I've been of the view that the chances that they're going to voluntarily disarm are near zero. Uh, so I don't think you can really go much lower than that. So I don't think the Soleimani killing is measurably going to affect things. What is interesting, though, is, uh, you know, in, in 2003, when the United States uh, began striking uh, Iraq in March, um, Kim Jong-il, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un's father, uh, was, he disappeared uh, for a matter of months, right? So the concern was, I mean, tensions between U.S. and North Korea were higher at the time. And that was just when the agreed framework the 1994 agreement between the U.S. and North Korea had fallen apart. So the North Koreans, I think, saw what was happening in Iraq, and there was a real concern that, you know, North Korea might be next. But Kim Jong-un has just, I mean, uh, if you look at North Korean state media today, he just carried out a public inspection. So it's not like he's uh, in hiding in a bunker or anything like that. Uh, I don't know. That's sort of my view on the North Korea thing. Uh, what do you what do you make of uh, how the North Koreans might be viewing this? No, I'd agree. I mean, I, I think it's it's very important, you know, as much as, you know, for, you know, for the headlines, you can sort of talk about, you know, twin nuclear crises and, you know, you have Iran, you have North Korea and, and you know, what are the differences? You, you, you do have to keep in mind that these are two uh, separate cases. I, I do think, you know, it is interesting in terms of the connection, uh, what the, how the headlines have developed in the last few weeks, right? You did see um, you know, before the new year, a focus on North Korea and sort of, you know, could we see a crisis? Uh, what Kim Jong-un had said and, and what we might expect from North Korea coming into 2020. But I think the Soleimani killing has, you know, put an emphasis on Iran as as kind of the crisis in, in U.S. foreign policy for now. Um, but I think the, the, the big worry is, you know, if, you know, despite the focus on, you know, are we heading for World War III or some kind of conflict, if the Iranians are to take a more calibrated uh, set of responses across a variety of realms, and they might sort of choose to at least be a bit more restrained because, you know, whatever it is, you look at the broad uh, sort of longer term perspective for the Iranians, you are, you know, you do have a U.S. election coming up, uh, you know, later this year. And so whether they're trying to hedge against what Trump is doing and a, and a potential you know, other U.S. president coming to office, there there might be a tendency for the United States to perhaps think that, and, and other observers, right, to think that this is more of a Iran issue for the moment, but North Korea still remains a, a, a big challenge. And I would argue, you know, North Korea already has a nuclear weapons. It already has talked about what it is going to do. Uh, we have much clearer sense about what the North Koreans are planning. So we could have a situation where not only the United States and, and other countries are dealing with two nuclear crises, but 
the Iran situation, at least for now, seems to have um, at least stolen the headlines from North Korea. But I'm sure it'll be back, as we've discovered multiple times on the podcast before. Yeah, I mean, you know, on one hand, I can see the case in North Korea that, uh, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, apocryphal statement that you should never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake sort of applies, mm-hmm. right? The North Koreans can kind of bide their time and see what happens here. Uh, they've certainly been uh, pretty quiet, uh, with the exception of the uh, the party plenum at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um uh, suggesting that they're no longer abiding by their missile launch, uh, missile and nuclear testing moratorium. Uh, so I expect we'll hear from them soon enough, uh, but certainly I think the North Koreans aren't going to mind if uh, the Middle East again soaks up a disproportionate amount of uh, U.S. attention. Um, mm. You know, I guess a final point to maybe think about is what about, what about you know, other um, sort of powers in Asia? I mean, particularly those aligned with the United States, including U.S. allies, you know, Korea, Japan, India, Australia, uh, all of these countries uh, are obviously paying attention to what's happening in the Middle East for a variety of reasons. I mean, in the case of allies, uh, if there is a major conflagration, they could be required or requested to contribute to a potential war effort, uh, which I don't think any of them are particularly eager to or see it as being in their interest. But also, you know, like China, um, Japan, India uh, certainly are major uh, energy importers and rely quite a bit on Iran specifically. Um, although, you know, the the post-JCPOA uh, withdrawal sanctions have stemmed that a bit, uh, have relied on energy stability also in the in the Gulf region. Uh, so uh, what do you think is going on in um, in many of these places? I, I think it's it's sort of a, a mix of uh, concern about, you know, strategically what we're seeing in the Middle East as well as um, what the United States is going to do, but also kind of an urgent sense of trying to secure immediate interests of these countries. So... I think, I mean, J- Japan is a good example, which, which you brought up. So, you know, we're already seeing, you know, Prime Minister Abe is going to be now visiting several uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, I think next week, Saudi Arabia, Oman, and UAE. Um, and he has, you know, positioned himself previously as being, a, you know, not really a mediator, but at least uh, someone who's trying to advocate for peace and stability when it comes to U.S.-Iran relations, trying to manage Japan's alignments there. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what what comes out of that. Um, I think a lot of the other countries, you know, you saw um, India, um, uh, Jai Shankar sp- spoke with several Middle Eastern countries, including Javad Zarif. Um, and I think er- India is very cautious about trying to make sure this balance that it's stri- tried to strike between securing its own interests, energy interests, and so on and so forth, but also making sure it doesn't get in the crosshairs of the Trump administration. I think the big issue for for these U.S. allies, U.S. partners, is you know it may be in a in a context where U.S.-Iran relations are not in the headline news and top of U.S. foreign policy minds. It might be easier for them to kind of play this balancing act. But how do you play that balancing act where? Uh, U.S.-Iran tensions are, are heightening, and it's of primary concern to U.S. policymakers. And I think that will be the the key source of concern uh, for these countries. Yeah. Well, uh, I think uh, I think we'll uh, end this one here. Uh, certainly, this is a fluid situation and far from being resolved. Um, although, you know, it does seem that after a few days, uh, the Iranians don't appear to be eager to escalate for the moment. Uh, even though we've seen various kind of reports citing. Uh, questionable, uh, you know, intelligence sources uh, on Iran potentially Mm -hmm. readying its ballistic missile forces or whatever. Uh, But certainly, I I think, uh, you know, this isn't the last we're going to hear about uh, U.S. attention uh, being uh, sort of diverted by uh, ongoings in the Middle East, of course, you know, of the of the United States own making. I mean, one of the takeaways here is, you know, uh, I think a lot of the political science literature sort of frowns on the notion of diversionary conflict that 
uh, leaders in democracies can mm -hmm. initiate conflicts for electoral reasons or to divert from domestic uh, concerns. I think there's a case to be made that the Trump administration might be a pretty good counterexample, um, you know, given uh, given what exactly uh, what's happening in Washington. Um, we've seen the administration do this, I think, before as well, uh, making uh, making the most of national security matters to detract from the president's domestic woes. So we'll see what happens. I mean, a lot of this, uh, like I said, remains very fluid. So uh, I suspect um, we might be back on the podcast talking about future developments in the Middle East and their implications for Asia sooner rather than later, unfortunately, Prashant. Uh, but uh, thanks a lot for joining mm -hmm. me today. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, so for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers. We're, uh, we're pretty ubiquitous there. And finally, if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. We really do appreciate the reviews. They really help build our listenership for the podcast. Uh, and finally, just a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.